Great to see you guys with us this morning. We're glad you're here. We're going to um, go straight into it. We didn't do any announcements and stuff, but um, I don't think the men's small group is meeting this week. It's Thanksgiving. Be joyful. Be thankful. Here's the thing, though, too. We wanted you to plan ahead. Because of the holidays times, we are a uh, young, hip, transient church. And as such, you people have no loyalty to the Lord Jesus at Echo on Christmas. So I, I don't want it to be like my family and, you know, people who have to be here just for Christmas while everybody else is out and about. So we are not going to have services on uh, Christmas Eve. If you have a theological problem with that, you can complain on our website or on our Facebook page. But um, so our, our last Christmas service will be the 17th of December. So just don't plan on being here the 24th. We'll make sure that that's it. Go and have fun with your families. But find a church someplace and worship the Lord Jesus, you pagans. You need it. There's an episode of Seinfeld called The Bottle Deposit. I don't know how well you all remember Seinfeld or this. It was actually a two-part episode occurring over an hour that in syndication, it's split up into two different aspects. But one of the underlying narratives of this episode was Newman, who is friend of Kramer, nemesis of Jerry. Uh, Newman wanting to figure out how to game the uh, recycled bottle deposit system. So uh, we don't do this in... Uh, uh, the great state of Ohio, but other states have this idea that you pay extra for your beverages so that you can actually redeem portion of that when you return said beverages. So in New York State, this is what the, the episode was. In New York, where they lived, it was a five-cent deposit, but in Michigan, it was a ten-cent deposit. So Newman comes to Kramer excitedly saying, look, we, we can do this and make a lot of money. And Kramer's like, look, I've done the math. It just doesn't work because by the time you rent a truck that's big enough, go through the tolls and the gas and everything, you're, all, you're working at a, a negative spread. It just does not work. Until around Mother's Day when there was the need for a big shipment to go to Michigan, Newman as a postal worker volunteered because he said, aha, now I can use the USPS truck and then we can cut our costs and Kramer says this is brilliant, and they go on a great expedition, and if you know anything about the rest of the episode, like almost all of Seinfeld, it does not work out at all, um, and it goes many different ways, at least of which Newman getting shot by a farmer, so it's a <laughs> Seinfeld, you can't beat it. Now, the reason I bring this up is for an economic principle with which you might be familiar with, but not know the $2 word for it, and that is a term called arbitrage. And I'm not going to laugh because I'm, I'm not going to lie. I'm in the finance industry right now myself, and I remember having this conversation with my boss one day, and he said, well, it's just like arbitrage, and I was just like, okay, uh, does that mean like it's arb arbitrary? Like, what is that? And he basically is like, no, idiot. And then proceeded to explain to me what arbitrage was. And it's the idea that if you have something of value, the idea that you can immediately sell it for a higher price. So basically what you're doing is you're taking advantage of fluctuations in the market, right? So if I like, am able to someplace find a whole lot of t-shirts, like 500 t-shirts, that only cost me a dollar, but I know the exact same t-shirts are going for $20 someplace else, I can take those and sell it, and that, friends, is arbitrage. The idea that you could take something that seems to be of one value but make additional value off of it with minimalistic work. It's a swap. 
Okay, and here's the thing about arbitrage, just as a, a concept, is that what it requires you to know is having understanding of markets to know when you can flip that. Now, what we always confuse then when it comes to business or almost anything in life is the difference between oppor being opportunistic, for, between opportunism, but then also luck. And some of you might be like, look, we're in a church. This is supposed to be spiritual. Like, does luck in of itself exist? And I would tell you, just as a principle, yes. It does. Because there are times that we are strategic and we benefit from that, but there are other times where we just fall bass backwards into whatever's coming our way. Can I give you an example of bad luck that might hit closer to home? And I think if you're from the Cincinnati area, or even have relocated here similarly, you might be familiar that at one point the city decided to build a subway. And it didn't go nearly as well as the counterpoint in New York in the top left. And you, you, can, you can hop on a subway in New York and you understand that that thing has been operating for over a hundred years. Actually, I think the first underground portion of it was like 1904 or 1906 or something like that. But what was interesting is that as the city fathers in Cincinnati decided, you know what, that could be something that would work here in the public transit, they decided to build themselves a subway. But what was interesting was when the main financing came through, it was two days before the start of the First World War. So as a result, bonds weren't able to be sold. They didn't have the opportunity to raise money. And right when that war ended, as they started to ramp it up again, the Great Depression hit. And as such, we basically have a hole in the ground under Central Parkway that goes to nowhere. Here's what I'm saying about this, is that it's not like the city fathers in New York were any wiser than that of Cincinnati. It's just that they started the program, uh, they started it a little earlier. They didn't know when the war was going to begin. They didn't know when the depression was going to hit. There is this aspect that sometimes the forces just come together and we get lucky. But more importantly than that, though, is when you and I, even in our life situations, attempt to be opportunistic. When we keep our eyes open for what could happen so that when an opportunity is put for us, we can act rapidly and make something happen. I don't know how often we are looking for arbitrage in our life, but what I want to talk about this morning is what I would call spiritual arbitrage. And in doing so, we're going to continue with the book of study that we've been doing the past few weeks. We're in the New Testament book of Colossians. This is a letter that the Apostle Paul, who lived after Jesus, wrote to some of the earliest Christian believers. The church in Colossae was in modern-day Turkey. It was a developing church where Paul had never even visited before, but he was trying to write them some spiritual advice. And again, if you've been with us up to this point, a lot of the advice was first, you know, trying to tell them what they needed to think with the challenge around them. But with this week, as we continue on, and we're going to wrap this up next week, at the beginning of Colossians chapter 4, what we're trying to figure out, what does it mean for us to engage with those who need Jesus? So I'll wind all this together over the course of our time together this morning, but we want to get into this. So we're in Colossians chapter 4. What page is that in the Blue Bible? If you have a Blue Bible, it's like 833, is that right? 835, I was close. Like, you know, horseshoes, hand grenades, people. So, and because we're doing the current microphone thing, I'm just going to read the scripture aloud, so I'm not going to be able to drink my coffee. It's going to stare at me longingly. Should just have somebody else read it. But then here's the thing. If you notice this, I'm telling you, if you want to be, you know, you talk about opportunistic, we're only going through verse 6 right here. I mean, that's like five verses, right? My math is bad. So this could go short, but it's not going to. Nervous laughter. Colossians chapter 4 verse 2 says, Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. 
So as Paul is concluding his thoughts to the Colossians here, we've seen the way that he works in other books. He works here right too. What he's trying to do is not just tell people what to do, but to have them use your minds in the process. So I can throw some theological terms up here so that you know we've done something today. It's two different terms. One is orthodoxy. And as we're doing our Latin breakdown right here, it literally means right belief, orthodoxy. And that's what Paul does in all of these books. He, he goes through and there's all these big theological words and as you're dealing with them, you're like, why is he telling them this? Because even if they don't fully grasp it, he wants them to know there's a reason behind the way that you ought to act. And he wants them to act properly. That's orthopraxy, right practice. So everything that Paul does is just like, hey, this is how the spiritual realm works and then this is how you should act. I'm going to tell you that we're not going to dip too much into orthodoxy this morning because we've been doing that in the previous chapters. If you want to catch up on why Paul tells us to do this, you need to go back and read Colossians chapter 1 and 2 in the beginning of 3. Kelly last week, when she was talking about the different roles of people, was getting into this idea of orthopraxy. What does it mean when we figured out, okay, this is why I should do things. What does it mean to actually do them? And Paul starts out incredibly simplistic right here. And the first thing that they're told to do is to devote. What does it mean to devote? It means to continue to do something with intense effort despite difficulty. And that, I believe, is something that we all struggle with today. As much as we want to believe that we're hard-working people, you know, that the good Lord provided, the idea is that we just like to give up really easily. How much crap do you have in your basement because you decided to do a hobby or, or, you know, or a skill that you were like, I'm so stoked to learn how to sew on a machine, and yet that thing now doesn't little more than collect dust. You know who you are. You know that it's either a bicycle or maybe it's, I don't know, a hyalai mitt or whatever they call that thing to be used for hyalai. And trust me, it's a thing. The idea, though, is that gen just generally, we tend to just fizzle out with our desires. Paul says, look, I want you to be devoted to do this with intense effort, even when it gets difficult. I want you to devote yourselves to prayer. I want you to be intense prayers. Now, there's this conversation that tends to happen in Christian circles, and I'll tell you, in our men's small group, we had this conversation as we've been studying the disciplines, the spiritual disciplines. When it comes to prayer, I rarely find somebody who's just like, prayer, I am awesome at that. Like, very few people call their shots. Like, I, I am like the, the maximum prayer in the world. I have the title belt to prove it. It doesn't usually work that way. And the reason is, is we always feel inadequate. Because as much as the Bible talks about prayer, prayer, and prayer, and even as you might have read everything about prayer, you're always just like, am I doing this well? And I would say that generally, something that you and I need to understand is that not to focus on these necessarily outcomes of prayer, or even just the way in which we pray, but the thing is to really dedicate, to devote ourselves to that practice to see what will happen. I started uh, running a few years ago. I mean, I've, I guess I've always run in some things because I'm a human being, but just running in races, uh, uh, it's now almost been a decade. And it's interesting because just, you know, I'm at the point now where I've run about 18 marathons. I'll try to do a few more next year. I'm just at this point, and I'll talk with people who are getting into running, and they're like, well, how do you do it? How do you get better? And I'm like, well, this is what you need to do. You need to run, and you need to run a lot. And that's the flipping key. 
Because what happens is that you think that you can work your way into it. And what was funny is, is that I got hurt more in the like first to third year runnings than I have just in the longest time. I've rarely been hurt in the previous years. And the reason is, is because the more that you build your body up to that tolerance, the better that you become at it. Through practice, we get through. Through devotion to prayer, you will improve at it. So as much as you want to buy, you know, go, go to the Christian bookstore if those things still exist now, and go buy a bunch of books that talk about prayer so you can figure it out, I would offer you maybe a better tack to take would just to be to start praying and do it a lot. And you might be like, I'm doing this wrong, but I would trust you that the more that you start to do it, the more that you would start to align yourself with what God is doing. Because notice then how Paul tells us to devote ourselves to prayer. He tells us at the end of the verse to be thankful with thanksgiving. We're entering into this week where we are contemplating thanksgiving. Actually, we're not because the world has pushed us to be immersed into Christmas already and we miss thanksgiving. The best holiday ever. I had this conversation with a nine-year-old boy this week. I kid you not, because we had one of those inane conversations where he started to ask me, he's like, what's your favorite food? And I was like, pizza. And he's like, well, that's a lame answer. I said, no, it's not. Because pizza has this, you know, it's very, you know, I've had bad pizza before, but I've not had a ton of bad pizza. I've had just some all right pizza. But if you take another food, like if I could say steak, man, I've had some horrible steaks before. Things that I would stop eating. So I'm telling you on the pantheon things, pizza is the best food. That is what happens when I finish my slides and notes late, which is why all this is interconnected. But I will tell you, back to the conversation, Thanksgiving is the best holiday because number one, you just be thankful. Number two, you eat and three, you watch football. It rocks. And I don't have to worry about giving somebody a gift that they're not going to like. It's great. But as the scriptures say, that posture of thanksgiving is not something that we should do in moments, but that we should devote ourselves to it, to make a habit of that. So if you're at the point and you're convicted after this thing, if this lesson that you take from this message is, I just need to pray more, okay, start doing it. And even if you don't know, just continue to list out the things for which you're thankful, right? And they may be a name, but the more that you do this, what you are doing is you're sending yourself into who God is and what he is doing. You are telling me that I have good things in my life, and it's not just because I'm a bright, smiling person, but it's because of what God has done. And if I continue to say that over and over and make it a habit, I will start to see the world differently. I want to go to the word that I skipped here, though that we need to be watchful. And I'm going to offer to you is that the word that overarches this entire text would be a synonym of being watchful and that we must be vigilant. The practice of vigilance. And that's another one of those weird words sometimes that we don't think of a lot of. But what it means is for you and I to be opportunistic. For us to be aware, and there was this aspect that I was going to go into a whole diatribe when I was working on my introduction. Should I call this the stay woke sermon? But there's just a lot of commentation within that. But just recognize that I'm over the age of 40 and I understand that that's a phrase. So by virtue of me saying the word stay woke, I should get like a gold star. I would say maybe better for us is it just means that I need to match myself into awareness that there's bigger things that play around me than what I see. Usually, I default for the lowest common denomination, right? I want to look at the world and just immediately identify maybe this is what's going on. But the idea that if we truly live in a world created by God, that he existed, in our view that he sent his son Jesus to die for us, that there's all these huge things at work and play that the moments at our discretion are important. 
And therefore, we need to be aware. What solves that, just really generally, is my idea of being in prayer. Because when I'm constantly praying, I'm acknowledging that there's forces in this world larger than me at work. And in that acknowledgement, I'm always ready for what God might put before me. So I would offer you, and we're going to get to the end of this, a synopsis of why Jesus wins with us is vigilance. Because he calls us to do more. We're going to get to that as a larger point. But what I want to do is read the next few verses and see where this takes us. Verses 3 and 4 of Colossians chapter 4. I'll read that now. Paul writes, And pray for us too that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Okay, so this is what's fascinating I find within spiritual realms. Because even though we're a church and we have a belief in the priesthood of all the believers that there's no spiritual hierarchy, it's not like we pass through, you know, a priest or a bishop or something to get higher so that we can access true God, that God is accessible to all his children in all the world. His accessibility is there. And yet I find it fascinating. That one of the greatest spiritual leaders who have ever lived, a person who really formulated Christianity as we see it, the Apostle Paul, as he is instructing, and remember, go back to chapters 1 and 2, that we had to decipher all these deep theological thoughts that Paul was going through. And he spent his whole life doing this, and yet at the end of this letter, he's like, by the way, I need you to pray for me. That, friends, is a request drenched in humility. Because I'll tell you something, I see this all the time, is that people sometimes use prayer as a weapon of power. Not just God's power, but relationship power so that they can do it. Every time, and this was, I worked in a seminary for about a decade, I would have this all the time where I'd have these kids come into my office, and they'd be like, so what can I be praying for you about? And I'm like, you know what, I love the concept of that, but the reason was is that they wanted me to observe them as like, I'm like the spiritual leader, and I go around asking people I can, how I can pray with them. And in doing so, it makes it seem like I'm the spiritual creature. And you might be like, is that dude just jacked up? Does that happen? I am telling you, it happens. Because very often we want to use spirituality for our personal benefits. And sometimes we'll use prayer. Now here's the antithesis of them, what Paul does through this. Is Paul just says, look, you won't need to be devoted for prayer. At the same time, do me a favor and pray for me. How many times have you ever really asked somebody to pray for you? Maybe you're those people who are really good at it. God bless you. I appreciate that. I appreciate people who are humble in their own lives to realize that I am struggling spiritually and I need help. My trust would be, and for those of you who are even new and coming to this place, this is a community where you could easily ask somebody to pray for you. And actually, this is what, you know, I didn't even plan this. Where's Eric? Eric's like the best prayer I know around here, which, he, which is great. You can see his eyes be like, really? Yes, really. And after this service, Eric's going to come up here. And if you need somebody to pray for you, Eric, some other people will be up here ready to pray for you. And you know why? But you just have to ask for it. You have to ask for it. And you know what? Um, I don't expect that you're like, okay, do I have... There should be a line, if at least for this, is that we all should be in the point to where we can ask each other, pray for each other. Because that's something that is helpful. It's a recognition of who I am. Now notice this about Paul. Paul does it, right? Paul, a brilliant thinker, says, listen, will you pray for me? Now recognize this, Brooklyn. Where'd she go? There you are. She says that that is my verbal go-to phrase, so now I've ruined church forever because I say recognize this many times. 
when I'm preaching. So now I've done it to you all because when I say it, this is how I break my habits, by the way. Is this getting too, like, fourth wall for us? Okay, recognize this about how Paul talks about prayer. He basically is not saying, hey, pray for me that I might be wealthy. Pray for me that I might have like an easy go of this thing. No, basically he's saying, look, pray for me so that Jesus can be glorified. Because what Paul has said is, look, I'm trying to live spiritually in this vein. I'm struggling. Pray for me. You know what I love about Paul right here too? And it's in verse 5, or 3, excuse me, that he says this. He goes, at the end of it, he goes, pray for me while I am in chains. And we've talked about this, is that Paul writes this letter to the Colossians while he is in a prison because of his stand for Jesus. Friends, I've been associated, like I've had family and friends who have been in prison, and it's not a source of pride. Everybody's like, hey, what are you doing? Well, I've got to go to prison soon, so I've got that going for me. Like, no, it is a point of, I don't want to be, you know, have that stigma around me. And that stigma has not changed in 2,000 years. Here's the thing, though, is that Paul is like, look, I am at a place where you might even question why I have the spiritual authority to say this. I'm in prison. I should be a bad person. Why would you do this? Because I am living my life in line with what God wants me to do and be, and therefore I need your prayer. Friends, it's okay. It's okay to ask for prayer. Let me do one more sub-point based upon that. It's okay to ask for prayer even if you're doubtful of whether or not that person is more spiritual than you. Right? Because you might be like, who can I ask for prayer? Well, I'm at this level, so I have to ask somebody a little higher at least. I can't somebody at a lower level to pray for me. That's bullcrap. If you need prayer, ask somebody to pray for you. This is a place where that could happen. I guarantee it. Am I right about that, by the way, for those of you here? I think this is a place. So, you know, and if I would say, you know, if I'm doing this in despair, this isn't all about me, but I try to make it that way. But if I would just say, I would ask for your prayer too. Because I'm a horrible spiritual person. I'm, 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 I'm a very bad guy sometimes. I need your prayer. You need my prayer. We need to be a community where we can seek that out. Can I just staple this last aspect to it in verse 4? Is that basically Paul says, help me to proclaim things clearly as I should. Understand is that vigilance, as Paul is, is, is talking about here, it always connects to clarity. Okay, so it's not just that I'm being opportunistic that I'm looking around, but I'm trying to think clearly of what that needs to be. Um, and when we talk about things... Um, I'm going to skip by. I don't even know what I'm doing anymore. I'm going to skip to the next verse and I'll talk about that in a minute. Can we go to verse 5? Verse 5, Colossians chapter 4. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. So not only are we told to make the most of things, vigilant, be vigilant, but we're told to be aware of how our vigilance is accepted. That is a challenge, I believe, for us today. I think that becomes incredibly challenging because it goes counter-culture. So if I'm going to take the wisdom of a very wise person, Harry Styles, who has said the phrase, okay, so this is on the internet, so it has to be true. Like I tried to attest my, I did not call Harry Styles, but I saw this in multiple sites on the internet. So if Harry, if you didn't say this, I don't know why I'm looking up as if Harry's in the sky, but Harry, Harry, if you hear this and I misquoted you, it's, it's House of Car Twitter, you can find me, and that's great. He is supposed to have said, you have to take me for me, I am who I am. I think that's a prevalent thought 
in society today, right? Like we live in the point where it's just like, here I am. I'm a little different, but that's okay because you need to love me for me, accept me for me. I need to be me for me. Now, let me tell you something is that the call for us then, based upon what Paul is saying right here, is to not critique those in the world who believe and live by this, right? You're like, okay, this is not a good way of living, and therefore I should tell everybody how bad this is. No, this, friends, as it relates to us, is supposed to be for followers of Jesus who are woke. Am I doing this right? I'm going to go with it. Who are vigilant. If you're a follower of Jesus and you're aware, you need to recognize that this is an egotistical way of living. Now, again, it doesn't mean that we can't have fun when I, you know, talk about myself or who I am and that. But if I am living life in a way, it's just like, this is who I am. They need to take me for as I am. Friends, that's not a good Christ-like way of living. That's not how Jesus lived his life. Actually, he lived it in the inverse. And he always tried to act in a way toward outsiders where he was loving and gracious. The people with whom he did this like, uh, what do I want to say? The people who struggled with this most were the religious leaders who knew their way was the best way to live spiritually. Like, Jesus, when he critiques in his life, critiques the people who viewed themselves as more spiritual. So our critique shouldn't be like with our neighbors and friends and colleagues, like, I don't need to love you how you are. No, that's the opposite. You are called to love people who view this way. You're just called not to be this yourself, Okay? Because the goal would be is that if they find Jesus in their lives, they start living selfless lives of praise to God. So I believe that there are three places in which it becomes key for you and I to be wise in how we act to make the most of every opportunity. We need to be strategic within that. The first place is personally. And I really am referring here to our personal interactions with other people. Friends, we live in an era where it is cool to be a critic, right? Like people have blogs and websites and entire careers based not upon creating things, but deconstructing and criticizing the things that other people create. Similarly, in this age and era of consumerism, we have expectations of how we treat other people. And we need to fix that. And you might say to yourself, and I think I like hammered on this a few weeks ago, but it was funny as I said this with my colleagues in a group setting, the idea of how we even treat waiters and waitresses at restaurants, or even more than this, how you treat people um, you know, who are in the service industry, right? We have this idea, it's like, wait, I paid for this, I deserve this, okay. I'm not telling you to get fully ripped off, but the way in which we interact with people can be at times a testimony to Jesus. The other day, uh, the other day, the other month, I had a rental car for work. I'm driving down the highway, and sure enough, one of these rogue semis, and I, I don't know, if, if Tesla had his semi, it would be great, I guess, I don't know, but rock flies up, hits my windshield, little crack by the time we get, you know, to where we're going, like a huge crack, right? So I have to then make a claim. Fortunately, my company insurance car has the insurance, but of course, when I'm working through that, there is a litany of steps I need to do to get this fixed. So I found myself Friday morning on a 45-minute conversation with a lady on the phone about this claim, right? And she's trying to attest the veracity, and she's asking me for every piece of information, some of which I have and some I don't. I don't know, understand how my blood type has to do with this rental car claim, but I, she felt that it did. 
And as much as I'm just like, this is a horrible use of my time, I'm just like, look, this is where God brought me today. So I just started asking the lady these questions about her life and stuff. And she's kind of pausing because she's like, what are we doing here? I'm just, I'm just trying, Shauna, I'm just trying to find out a little bit about yourself. What part of the country do you live? You know, because I, I don't assume that. And we're talking, I probably took us on a three, four minute deviation. I would never talk to Shauna the rest of my life, right? But at the least, is it, at the least when it comes out to, it takes me the point to reposition and say, Shauna's a human being doing a job that can suck sometimes, and I'm not going to make it suckier. I need to do this personally. Maybe taking this to the next level professionally because then you might be in the job where you're like, you know, some of you are in the job where you're at this point where you're the peon and, you know, and I, I don't know if that's the etymology of peon, but I feel like it, it can be. Somebody look that one up for me or, or I, I don't want to inverse that. Or maybe you're on the other side of the equation. Maybe you're the person. But even if you're working with people upline, downline from where you are professionally or general colleagues, how you treat people at work says something about your relationship with Jesus. And yeah, maybe you're in the point at work where you are the bad guy, right? Like, I am the person who needs to make sure that costs are aligned or all these types of things. Okay, if so, there are ways to do that where it's wise so that Jesus can still be glorified even when you have difficult conversations. Living in the world, in a professional world, means that you're always having tough conversations. They need to be in a place where they can be handled <clears throat> well enough that people can see Jesus as you do it. Can I tell you the last one? And really, this is just me shoeboxing stuff in because I wanted to hit my three Ps right here because, look, like two Ps and one not, you just scrap the whole thing. I didn't want to start over. I'm going to say programmatically is that we programmatically think of how we present ourselves digitally. So I could have said digitally. So I'm just I'm making that stretch right there. Because there's the idea. When you're like, when I'm on the social medias and stuff, you're like, this is just me being me. No, it's not. You're not Harry Styles in this place. You're actually creating this fakeness of who you want people to think that you are, right? Like you're not just a representation of you. You're crafting this aspect of you. And if you are an a-hole on the social medias, you know, even though it might not be who you are, it's going to feel like that to other people. And by virtue, you are in a way harming the opportunity for somebody to come to know Jesus. And by the way, I'm not going to make any political, social statements about this, but I see it on all ends of the spectrum. People who I perceive are actually correct and making good points, and even people who are making horrible points. The idea, though, is, is that as I represent myself, even if it's like an organization, because some of us are just like, look, American Airlines did me wrong, and I will tweet the hell out of them until they fix it. It's even within those interactions, friends. If we are quick to critique, you need to be just as quick to compliment and to lift up. I would like to summarize all of this, not by Steve Wisdom, but by Jesus' words, who on the Sermon of the Mount said that we ought to let our lights shine before others that they may see our good deeds and glorify God. That's your life. Your life should exist to see the opportunities before you to elevate Jesus higher. Because the more that we're doing this, friends, the more that we become the people we want to be internally. Become who you want to be. Change your inside. Okay, verse 6 of Colossians chapter 4. Read this with me. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. So what does it mean to be vigilant in conversations with those who don't know Jesus? I would look at this, and before we get to this point, I would just say, let's look at this illustration that Paul adds right here, that our conversation should be seasoned with salt. I think we, living in the 20th 
21st century, that's where we're at now, right? In the 21st century, I think we have ways of viewing this, but understand the ways the ancients perceived salt. The first thing that they did is they saw salt as being incredibly valuable. It was a commodity, and it was a commodity that was even traded for. So if you know about this, but like the root word for the term salary is actually natured in the word salt. So there's a correlation between salt and salary. Why is that? It's because in ancient times, people would barter and deal with salt because it was one of the most valuable things at their hands, at their, at their discretion. So they saw salt as being valuable, almost like money, right? A second thing that salt was useful for was for flavoring. Okay, as much as you might not like bland food today, can you imagine what the food was like 2,000 years ago? Right? And you're like, well, at least I have like some, I was going to say oregano, but that, and that's it. You know, like, that, that's my default. I, I, I suck at the cooking. Man. And I'm, you know what's really sad is that pause right there is that I'm having a, just one of those mind gaps. It's like, oh, cilantro. I couldn't think of cilantro. I was like, without cilantro, Chipotle goes out of business, right? Because it's like how everything is. And you take for granted, even if you don't like the taste of cilantro, here's the thing, is that you have so many things at your disposal today. You know, like food, even bad food, can actually taste like something, but in ancient times it tasted like absolutely nothing. So that's why they needed salt, right? Like, you know, we, we, are, we see it differently now. But for them, it was like salt actually just makes life interesting. Like, praise Jesus for that. Paul's connecting that with him. The final thing just to talk about is it was a preservative, right? And if you know anything about this, but, you know, bacteria forms from, from wetness, you know, that created by water. What does salt do? It eliminates water generally. And as such, then, it is this magical thing that allowed food to last longer. So if Paul is trying to say our conversation should be like that, seasoned with salt, how then do we view that? Well, the first thing that we see is that our conversation should have value. So understand this. I could have said recognize this, but I didn't. You see what I did there? I'm working on synonyms right now. Um, understand that in my conversations then, it doesn't always have to be valuable. Sometimes I like just talking about dumb things with people. Right? Like, it's just sometimes fun just to, to, to just chew the fat on something that's ridiculous, right? But what I need to make sure of, if I'm really trying to show somebody Jesus' love, is that I'm trying to say, hey, is this time with me valuable? And I would say then that if I'm then, if my conversations are seasoned with negativity, if I'm just a person who are like, oh crap, here comes Steve again. I'm going to have to talk to him. And they want to get through it as soon as possible, that's probably not where I need to be. So what we need to make sure is that I am vigilant for those opportunities to see those openings where people want to do this. Now, if I, if I can clarify, this isn't then that we need to become those mad evangelists. Like, it's like, well, how's your day going? Well, it's horrible. The weather's bad. Yes. You know where the weather is bad? In hell. It's not that we're trying to move things like that. What we're trying to do is just see an opportunity. Friends, when we start to be opportunistic when we're talking to people, we will see places where there are spiritual yearnings. Spiritual opportunities for us to be able to talk with them. Because these are not conversations that people regularly like to have, but sometimes they will open up. So what I'll do is I'll just start conversations. If there's a thread there, I might even tug a little bit on it. And again, my goal is not to then convert them before I'm finished. But at all points, we need to have conversations about our mortality, right? Life is bigger than the little things. So if they're going to open an opportunity, I want to ask about that because maybe that's what Jesus is doing for me. 
He's putting me in that moment to have a conversation. And I'm going to tell you, I will be totally transparent with you on this. Those, those times for me are probably less than 5%. I want you to think about that. Like I, when I'm out and about talking with people, I'll have these deep conversations sometimes or, or try to lead them toward that and then they'll veer off the exit ramp. That's totally fine. But it's for those 5% where I'm like, maybe Jesus put me here at this moment to be able to have a conversation that helps them. So I'm vigilant to see those opportunities. I want to make sure when I'm talking, the seasoning is one of value. Our conversation should be flavorful. And, uh, you know, it's interesting just to see what, what, what that means. It's like, how, how do I make, you know, sure that my conversations have flavor, okay? I, I would tell you this easy tip, and again, I'm not sure that this is necessarily biblical. I could come up with some fake thing, but I'm telling you, this is like God's truth anyway, is there, there's this song, is that Jesus is the most beautiful name. I think we've even sung this idea. It's like, Jesus, what a beautiful name. Yeah, you know what the most beautiful name really in the English language is, it's the name of whomever you're talking to because they love to hear you say their name. Why? Because generally, we love to talk about us, right? Like, we love to have this conversation. You know how I flavor my conversations? Very simply, I try to ask questions. I ask them questions about them. And what you see is that the more that you ask questions of people, the more that they open up. I'm, you know, what's funny is that I actually did, we did some sales training a while back, and you're looking into this. This is exactly what they tell you to do. They just say, just start asking questions, asking about them. And you're like, oh, this is just like sales for Jesus or something. I'm not trying to give us hives in this moment. But listen, if you really care about somebody, ask them questions, and they'll open up. Some of you still have recollection. There was a guy that came to this church for years named Todd. It was very interesting because Todd, he was a big dude. He couldn't be missed in the crowd, but he, he just, he, he had mental illness and he struggled to interact with people. But you know what Todd did better than almost anybody I ever remember did? Todd asked questions. And not only did he ask questions, he remembered. Because I remember one time I'd be talking to Todd. He's like, okay, so your nephew Tyler was doing this. And I'm like, dude, I think I've mentioned that once. He asked questions, but then he put that to memory. And you know what? That was one of the things, is that even though because of Todd's mental illness, it was always difficult to converse with him, one of the key things with the relationship is that he was interested not just in using me as a resource, but in my life. So that's an opportunity for us to be flavorful. Ask good questions. Remember things. Be that person who pays attention. And then finally, as we're looking at this, I think it's important that we need to have op- uh, conversations that are preserved. And a synonym of preserve is to keep What are those conversations that can be cherished? If I only have a few minutes to interact with people, and it's interesting with my work and my travel right now, I get that a lot sometimes, but I I am always looking at those opportunities. It's like, I am not going to be an ass to you today. Like, that's the problem, is that the people I'm worst to is the people that I know the most, because I'm like, they really know who Steve is. I need to work on that. But let me tell you what we need to work on is this idea that when we have just these singular moments to have conversations with people, are they memorable? You know, what if, again, what if it's a waiter or a waitress? What if it's somebody working in a horrible job? What if it's a telemarketer that you really just want to put off and be angry to? Maybe there's a conversation there that in your posture can make it memorable, can make that a conversation that they will keep. Again, this seems very pragmatic, but it speaks back to what Jesus does in my life. When I see others for more than what they look at the surface, for even more than sometimes how I want to label them, it can be powerful for them. So what we need to do is make sure in those interactions we're speaking as if it's things to be cherished. New Testament scholar N.T. Wright summarized what Paul was talking about here. He says, Paul knows that a tedious monologue is worse 
than useless in, inv in evangelism. Christians are to work at making their witness interesting, lively, and colorful. Okay, so you're like, look, does that mean that Jesus has to then make me be interesting? Like, do I have to wear bright colored shirts? You know, what does this look like? Friends, just show the love that you have for people so that they know it, so that it's apparent that they are loved, okay? So look, this is what, and this is the reason why I would say that Jesus wins. Is what he's been doing through all Colossians, right? We've had the, like, these words talking about this is why Christianity is a belief system that's higher. And this one seems further to track, but it's the idea that we should be vigilant. Now listen, our society loves the idea and concept of vigilance. You probably do too. Just take a look at the songs, popular music of the last years that are actually opportunistic for individual arbitrage, right? Like it's these moments to where like, hey, your life is this way, way now, but just keep at it, be vigilant because there's something out there. Alexander Hamilton tells us that I'm not throwing away my shot. Miley Cyrus says there's always going to be another mountain. I'm always going to want to make it move. Drake says I was trying to get it on my own, working all night, traffic on the way home. Eminem said, you only get one shot, do not miss your chance to blow. Bon Jovi, it's my life, it's now or never, I ain't gonna live forever. I just want to live while I'm alive. Katy Perry said, cause baby you're a firework. Come on, show them what you're worth. Make them go, oh, oh, oh. As you shoot across the sky, I, I. What I really want to do right now is everybody to pull up their phones and show you what songs that you have on your iPhone that I just said. Because you know you got them. And Rob's just like, don't let him find my Katy Perry. Because <laughs> baby, you're a firework. Think about it. No, and, and again, if you work out or something like that, or you need that pumped up, you know, that Dwight Schrute moment when you're getting into the work, like you have those pump up songs. Why do we do that with music? It's because we have the time. It's like, okay, now's the time. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to own this. I'm going to do this. And I would tell you then that vigilance in of itself is not like this Christian concept because we do it to ourselves all the time, right? We're always looking for opportunities to improve our lot in life, to, to, to change where things are, to make things better. But this is the difference in why Christianity, why Jesus wins. It's this idea that our vigilance, we're told to be this and to practice this. But the end goal is not for me. That's the difference. Because usually I'm looking for opportunities to improve myself and to make my life better. But what Jesus does is try to invert that and says, be vigilant because I can make the world better through you. You are my tool to be able to change the very eternities of other people. And therefore, please, be aware of those moments and then do not let them fade. Be opportunistic. Be vigilant. Paul later writes in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 16, that we should be careful how we live, not as unwise, but as wise, and make the most of every opportunity. Jesus wants you to be vigilant. Jesus wants you to be aware of what's happening and to recognize that he wants you to do so not just because he loves you and wants to see your life improve, but he wants to see your life used as a blessing to other people. And that is what he is challenging us to do this week. And not just this week, but for long beyond this. Friends, how are you being opportunistic
Where are those opportunities for spiritual arbitrage that exist so that you can take what is and just repackage it and make something valuable for the Lord and for their lives? This week, be aware. Stay woke. Observe what's going on around you, right? Look at those individuals who are by themselves. Look at those individuals who are demonstrably struggling. Maybe even look a little different beyond surface to try to listen to how people talk. To see those who just need some help. And you be those people. And you pray for them. And even if this is what God's called you, you might be talking, pray with them. Offer them that. Present those opportunities for them for kingdom change. So I'm going to ask. I'm going to have a prayer. Eric, I want you to come up here and just say this. And if anybody later wants to ask Eric, if you, you know, we're going to close out the service with my prayer. If you're in the point where, you know, there's something going on in your life. Um, and where's my wife? Kelly, she's, she's actually, this, you're probably a better prayer than Eric, but I didn't want to insult him in front of other people. I'm going to ask her to do the same thing. I'm, they're going to be up here after church. If you need something like that, feel free to go pray. It's this thing, pray, ask somebody for prayer. Let's humble ourselves. Let's live lives of vigilance and see what the Lord can do with us. Amen? Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this moment that you brought us together today. I thank you the word from your Apostle Paul to the Colossians because they resonate with us too, Father. Um, help us to devote ourselves to prayer. Help us to ask when we need it. Father, in those situations this week where we see people, help us to make the most of every opportunity. Not for our benefit and glory, Father, but for yours. Because we realize that you have put on this earth, us on this earth to be a blessing, to be a blessing for others. And let us be vigilant to see our chances to make the difference. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.